Well, thank you, Brandon. You all right? Good morning. Hey, if you're new, uh, like Brandon said, welcome. Uh, it's our great joy to have you here with us here today. Uh, our goal here as a church is to help you take your next step with Jesus Christ. So you picked a great Sunday to join us. We are in the middle of a series on the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and find 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. We're going to be in chapter 10 uh, after finishing what Brandon just referenced there for you, a section in the uh, probably the most expl- explicit New Testament section on giving, which aren't you glad we're through that? Whew, that's enough conviction for me, isn't it? Gosh, Again, Paul goes after your heart and your money and your investment and all that kind of stuff. So uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to make a, a turn in the book. Second Corinthians, uh, I'm, hold on, I'm in First Corinthians. Let me try again. Uh, okay, I'm with you. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10 through the end of the book is a pivot. Like I said, you've got three major sections in this book, chapters 1 through 7 that talk about Paul's ministry. You've got chapters 8 and 9 which talk about money and what you're going to talk about in 10 through 13 are the marks of an apostle. And uh, commentators, uh, some commentators think that these last four chapters are uh, an addition on the book. Some commentators think that this is the essence of Paul's severe letter. Uh, Because one of the things that you find in the end of this book is a remarkably different Paul. Paul has been appealing and passionate and invested and uh, suffering and desperate for God's comfort. He's uh, yearned for the Corinthian church all throughout chapters 1 through 7. He's challenged them and exhorted them to obedience in chapters 8 and 9. And what he's done in the first nine chapters is deal with uh, the repentant majority of the church. If you remember back in the early part of the book, this church had to discipline a member, a guy who went toe-to-toe with the Apostle Paul. And they did it. They obeyed. They, they kicked the guy out. And they kicked him out so bad that Paul said, now don't be too harsh. Bring him back in. Put your arm around him. Encourage him. Love him. Bring him back in. Remind him of the comfort of Christ. And they did that too. Uh, so Paul has been greatly encouraged by how this church has responded to his exhortation through that severe letter that we don't have, but is between 1st and 2nd Corinthians in our Bible. And this church has responded beautifully. Well, the trouble that you have as you move into chapters 10 through 13 is that Paul's tone changes. In the first nine chapters, he's uh, soft, he's endearing, he's passionate, he's caring. In the last four chapters, Paul throws some hammers. Uh, He, because what he's doing in the last four chapters is not only defending his apostleship, but what he is doing in the last four chapters is dealing with the unrepentant minority that still exists in the church. There is still a faction within this church that will not submit to Paul's exhortation. They will not obey the gospel that he preaches. In fact, what you find in the latter part of these four chapters in this book is that you'll find they're still accusing Paul. They're still launching an attack against God's apostle. So the reason Paul's tone changes is what you're going to see in 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6. Just in this first little bitty paragraph of this new section of the book, you're going to find out why Paul's tone is so serious, why his tone uh, is essentially combative against this unrepentant minority in the church. So uh, what Paul is going to talk about here in 2 Corinthians 10, these first six verses, is spiritual warfare. 
And just saying that may conjure up all sorts of different things in your mind. Steve, are we going to talk about demon possession? What about exorcisms? Are we going to talk about movies and how demons are portrayed? And we're not going to talk about any of that. So I'm sorry. I know. I wish it was in there too, but I got to preach. I don't write the mail. I just preach it. It's, this is what it is. Uh, you're going to find out that spiritual warfare is far more deceptive, far more subversive uh, than what is often portrayed in the media. And what you're going to find when we deal with spiritual warfare in this passage is, is Paul's simply going to lay it out for you. He's going to tell you what it is. Number two, he's going to tell you how to fight. Aren't you, do you want to know how to fight? Wouldn't that be important in the life of a church? Well, Paul's going to tell you how to fight. And most importantly, Paul's going to tell you what victory looks like. Because we need to know that too, don't we? So you're going to find out what it is, how to fight, and what victory looks like. All in these first six verses here in this passage. You with me? All right, let's get to it. Let's pray. Father, we pause for just a minute and we acknowledge that all of us, every man, every woman, every child who is in this room, is in a fight of their life. That we face conflict in our lives as we go throughout our, our daily walks. In this world where we face the temptations of the world and the flesh and the spiritual attacks of the enemy, the devil. So Father, for these few minutes as we look into your word, we pray that you would blow away all the fog and all of the uncertainty about the truth of the warfare that we are in and that you would give us courage, that you would give us clarity, you would give us confidence in your word. And you would show us, Father, where we may be confused and uncertain about situations that are happening in our life. We pray that you would give us eyes to see where our hearts and our minds are at war with the gospel and are fighting the battle of belief and unbelief that, it's the level of, that is at the level of our hearts. So, Father, may your word go forth in clarity and truth, in purity and righteousness. Would you change us and shape us by your spirit to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. All right, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Y'all there? Let me say, hey, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black one around you somewhere. Push your neighbor and grab it. And if you don't have it, that's our gift to you. We'd love to, for you to read it until... It doesn't work, and then come back and get another one. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Let's talk about what it is. What is spiritual warfare? Here's how Paul starts. I, Paul, myself. Now, that's a weird way for Paul to start, isn't it? Me, myself, and I are going to have a conversation. That's Paul's literary way of getting the face of the church to look at his face. Now, Paul has invested in this church. He began this church. His preaching uh, created the New Testament church at Corinth. It was birthed out of his gospel conviction and gospel preaching. And Paul, in somewhat of a serious, self-directed way, says, Church, get your eyes on me. I, Paul, myself, entreat you. It's the word parakaleo. It means to call beside it's a word often used in 2 Corinthians for the word for comfort. To where Paul now is going to exhort this church and challenge this church, he's going to use two intensely emotional verbs in verse 1 and verse 2 to get this church's attention and to get their eyes on him. So Paul's saying, I'm going to call you to something. Please get your eyes on me. 
And you feel this from the beginning of this passage, and it'll develop all the way through these six verses, is that you feel the severity and the seriousness of Paul having this conversation. So he entreats you. Now, I want you to see, as Paul begins, how Paul makes this appeal. Look at what the remainder of this first part of the verse says. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, we're getting ready to talk about spiritual warfare. I just told you that. But it's interesting to me that Paul the Apostle begins with two almost contrasting descriptors of Jesus Christ. Now, if you have a cross-reference in your Bible at verse 1, you probably have a spot in Matthew chapter 11. You probably have a spot in Philippians chapter 2. Well, Matthew chapter 11 is the passage where Jesus describes himself. And he uses this word meekness. Now, we were, I was talking with my kids this week, driving around. I made my kids read the text for Sunday that we were going to read, and I made them ask questions. And they got to this word meekness. And what everybody asked is Steve, or dad, they don't call me Steve. <laughs> they, <laughs> you can call me Steve. You can't call me dad, though. Uh, they said, dad, what is meekness? Well, here's how Jesus uses this term meekness in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, this word, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we had this conversation in the car where we were talking about what is meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Okay? I'm going to say it again. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness, would you agree that Jesus is capable, strong, yea, even the Son of God? Say yes. Yes, you would agree that Jesus, Jesus, now brings me to my second, the second term that Paul uses, the gentleness of Christ. And you probably have Philippians chapter two. Well, Philippians chapter two talks about Jesus's emptying, where he came down and walked among us and became a man without losing any of his divine attributes. The Colossians says the fullness of the deity is in Jesus Christ. So when Paul begins this exhortation and this calling upon the church, where he's starting is with his eyes on something very particular about Jesus Christ. He's starting with Jesus' meekness, not his weakness. And I told my kids, here's what meekness is. Meekness is strength under control. Meekness is Jesus' massive ability to uphold the universe by the word of his power and still minister to the lost and the hurting and the broken. It's what you see during Jesus' earthly ministry where he says, a, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, a bruised reed he will not break. Was Jesus gentle? Yes. Could he command demons? He can do that too. So Paul begins as the leader, as God's ordained apostle and his calling to this church with something that is very important for spiritual leaders to know is that spiritual leaders, God's apostles, his designated leaders to and for the church are meant to lead out of a recognition of Jesus' heart. Paul doesn't just start throwing hammers and saying, I'm an apostle, get your life together. He says, I plead with you according to the same meekness and gentleness that Jesus had. 
that this appeal that I'm going to make to you comes out of a heart of profound tenderness and gentleness and humility toward you, church. So Paul's going to say some hard things in these next few chapters. But he starts with saying, my appeal comes from a place of great meekness, great gentleness towards you. You with me so far? Now, I want to show you the remainder of this verse. Now, anybody have an NIV Bible? Raise your hand, you got an NIV. You got an NIV? In the NIV, the NIV does a good job of helping you to understand what this next phrase is. This next phrase, as Paul writes it, is an accusation. Now, Paul has sent Titus to this church. He sent Titus with the severe letter. And Titus came with the severe letter. The church rebuked and disciplined the guy who went toe-to-toe with Paul. And Titus comes back to Paul and says, Paul, they did it. They obeyed. They listened. They rebuked this guy. They disciplined this guy. They kicked him out of the church. He can't even come back in. They won't let him on the block. It's real bad. And then Paul writes and says, all right, we'll bring him back in. Let him encourage him and bring him back in. But one thing that Titus reports to Paul is that Paul still has a reputation in the Corinthian church. And it's a reputation that's being uh, capitalized upon by the false teachers. And the false teachers are now accusing Paul of certain motivations in the church. And there's still a minority, though the majority listens to Paul, now the minority is believing the lies that these false teachers are saying. And here is the accusation that they're saying. So if you've got an NIV, you'll see these two words are in italics, or I'm sorry, in uh, these quotations. Verse, uh, the latter part of verse one, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold when I am away. Well, what are they saying? They're saying, when Paul came and Paul was with them, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I was with you in weakness and in trembling. I was timid with you. I so cared about your spiritual life. I was as gentle as I could be. And then he gets confronted in the church and he leaves. And then Paul writes this incredibly intense and powerful and bold uh, rebuke of the individuals who are in the church. So if you were going to critique Paul, what would you do? You know what I would do? I'd say he's weak in person. He only wants to get bold when he doesn't see the reaction on the other side. He doesn't want to say the strong thing face to face, man to man. And if I'm a false apostle and I'm trying to get your ear in the church, I'm going to say, I'm bold and I'll say it right to your face right now. I've got no problem. I don't need to retreat and write you a letter. I'm not going to wring my hands and be sad about you and what you think or what you feel. I'm a grown-up. I'm a man. We can deal with this face-to-face. So that's the accusation against Paul. You ever, have a, you ever know anybody who uh, face-to-face is real gentle, real meek, real kind, but then you find out that they're in the comment section? You find out that they can write some emails You put them behind a keyboard and all of a sudden the demeanor changes from nice and sweet and gentle to now bold and courageous and critiquing of what is going on. That's the accusation. That's what they're telling the church that Paul is like. Paul doesn't really care about you. Paul is just scared of your response. Paul doesn't really love you. 
He writes all these strong letters, but he doesn't see you when they arrive. He sends them by the hand of somebody else. He doesn't even come himself. And all throughout 2 Corinthians, you're facing these false apostles, these false teachers who are going to capitalize on the decisions that Paul is making. And what they're going to do is accuse him because of his decision making. And they're going to accuse him to the church and say that his motivations are corrupt. So what is Paul going to do? How is Paul going to answer these false apostles and false teachers who are in the church and trying to dissuade the church and uh, deceive the church into believing a different doctrine? How serious is Paul going to take this? So Paul says, I hear what you're saying about me. You're saying I'm humble face to face. Usually humility in the Bible is a positive attribute. Here, the false teachers jump on it and they make it a cause for critique. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. Verse two, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. You wanna make a note in your Bible? Don't make me come up there. You ever say that? Any parents, you ever say that? Don't make me come back there. Don't make me come up there. What is he saying? He's saying, church, I beg of you. This is, this is the interesting thing about what is happening. We, we see it thousands of years later. But here is the tension in the church. What is this church going to do? Will this church respond to the letters of Paul, to the emissaries that come and say, prepare the gift, prepare the giving so that when I come, you're not embarrassed? Will this church order its life and its affection and its doctrine according to what the New Testament apostle who is writing the New Testament, will they order their lives according to what the word says? We don't know, right? So this is a church in flux, in motion, who is finding Paul writing to them saying, there's a time when I'm going to arrive. I'm going to show up in the church. He just said this in the last chapter, where I'm going to come with the Macedonians, and I don't want you to be ashamed. I want you to have been faithful to what I've called you to do. So Paul says, I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence. Where does Paul's confidence come from? Well, it comes from Christ. It comes from the fact he's been personally commissioned by Jesus Christ to be the leader and the apostle of the gospel ministry going forward. So Paul has the right to discipline those in the church. He has the, uh, the validation from Jesus Christ himself to be the New Testament apostle, to handle issues in the church with accuracy and clarity. But he's saying, I don't, I don't want to have to do that. So all along the way in Paul's ambition to disciple the Corinthian church, he's wanting them to grow up. He's wanting them to take responsibility for their church. He's putting before them gospel principles and gospel truths that they ought to live by. And he's giving them space to obey them. So here's the accusation, essentially. It comes at the end of this verse. I count on showing against some, that's that unrepentant minority who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. It's interesting that his critics aren't aiming necessarily at Paul's decisions. 
of whether to stay or whether to go, of whether to be face-to-face or to retreat for the good of the church. What they're aiming at are his motivations. They're using the decisions he's, he's making, and they're building a case against him. And what they're doing, what they're accusing Paul of doing is getting, or is, um, I'm sorry, what they're doing is aiming at Paul's motivations in the decisions that he's making and saying, aha, because Paul's unreliable, because, because Paul doesn't do what he's saying he will do, because Paul is one way in present and a bold person when he writes a letter, Therefore, he must be walking according to the flesh. Well, what does that mean? What does walking according to the flesh mean? It means that the central motivation of my life, this is a constant tension throughout Paul's letters and a lot in the New Testament, is either to walk by the flesh or to walk by the spirit. If I walk by the flesh, what I'm doing is making my passions, my desires, my ambitions, my preferences, the central motivating factor in my life. It's the the ground out of which all of my decisions are made. Self-protection making sure my reputation is still high. Being a people pleaser is walking according to the flesh, which is what their accusation is here. They think Paul's making his decisions because he's scared of the consequences. He's scared of what those in the church will think of him. So they're saying, ah, we see how you're acting, Paul. You aren't led by the spirit like we are. You are led by the flesh. You're led by corrupt motivations. You're really just looking out for yourself, Paul. You don't care about the church. You with me? So do you see the subversive element that is living in the Corinthian church? Critical, questioning motives, guessing, and trying to leverage Paul's apparent inconsistency to gain a hearing for those who are in the church. So, let's see what Paul says. Verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh. Now, flesh is used two times in this verse. You can't see it in English because it's the same word flesh, but there's two different Greek words. One is the first one. For though we walk in the flesh, it means we're essentially human. It's who we are. It's the flesh part of who we are. Though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. The second use of flesh has to do with ways of thinking and practicing, methods, human resources, uh, plans and ambitions that are essentially human in origin. And he's going to contrast walking according to the flesh with walking according to the spirit, essentially. And the central verb in this verse is something that Paul has only hinted at up to this point in the book of 2 Corinthians. It's the same word that Paul will use when he talks to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 where he says, fight the good fight. And the central verb there in verse 3 is that we are waging war. Now, if there was an individual who ran into our church right now who was completely clothed in battle fatigues, who was armed to the teeth with multiple weapons, blades, was ready to go to war. And he made a declaration at this point where he said, we are at war. We would have a decision to make, wouldn't we? Because up to this point, in this conversation, if you're alive at this time and in this church, you may be thinking this is a personality issue. These are just competing individuals in the church who have different ways and methodologies of preaching and teaching. 
And the New Testament apostle decides at this point to use a term that you either have to agree with wholeheartedly or you have to disagree with wholeheartedly. Imagine going to the beach and you are ready for the beach and you have your boogie board and your life jacket and your sunscreen and your cooler and your drinks and your tent and everything and you're making your way out to the beach and you encounter an individual on the beach who is dug into the sand watching the waves crash, who's got the face paint on and his weapon aimed. You are going to have to make a decision. Either this individual is seeing things accurately, or I am seeing things accurately. But it can't both be true. It can't both be, I'm ready for war, and I'm going to catch a wave. Right? So when Paul says this, nobody's been talking about war until Paul says, we are at war. So this is an incredibly powerful literary device to get your attention. Because you're going to have to decide whether or not you actually believe that what you're experiencing now in your Christian life, in the heavenly places, is a spiritual combat or not. It also tells me that up to this point in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul's heart for the church, the evidence that he has suffered and come to the end of himself, where he has felt in himself the sentence of death, where he has needed the very comfort of God, where he has appealed to and called to the church to be reconciled to God, where he has said to the church, open wide your heart to us. Our heart is open wide toward you. Everything that Paul has written now means that he's not merely emotional or merely just anxious because he's facing a difficult situation in life. Everything that Paul has written up to this point in the book of 2 Corinthians has been tactical. It has been aimed at affecting a goal in the life of this church. So he says, this isn't me versus the false teachers. This is me in a war. And the image you get of Paul in the first seven chapters is someone who is overwhelmed almost. Someone who is weakly and uh, maybe sick. He looks timid. He looks at the end of himself. He's got this treasure in a jar of clay. And as he gets to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the image starts to blur. And what you start to see is an army general. You start to see this individual who is so committed to winning this war in the lives and the hearts and the minds of his church that he will go to whatever extent he can to make sure that victory happens. Now that's pretty intense, isn't it? It's pretty intense to consider that Paul up to this point has been fighting a spiritual battle. So he says, we're not waging war according to the flesh. We're not using human resources. We're not using human methods. We're not using human schemes. We don't walk that way. Now, the most dangerous thing that you can do, and the most dangerous thing that I can do, is either to ignore, to downplay, or to deny that you are in a spiritual battle. Would you agree? To outright deny that we are in a spiritual battle means that you are a 
you're done. To downplay the fact that you are in a spiritual battle. And to say, ah, oh, there's just not that much, Satan's not really after me. There isn't really anything going on in my life right now. Everything's pretty much normal and okay. Or to ignore the fact that you are in a spiritual battle means that your spiritual life will essentially be characterized and based upon the things that you will see. And Paul's about to tell us what the battle is about. And he's about to tell you how to get armed. Do you want to know how to get armed? Let's find out how to fight. Verse 4. He explains, we're not waging war against the, uh, according to the flesh. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Okay, I'm with you. We don't have fleshly weapons. Gosh, don't you wish sometimes that you could see the war? Don't you wish sometimes that, the, that war, physically speaking, is very clear? It's very easy to know when you're at war. But in a spiritual battle, it's hard to see that. It's hard to understand that. And Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power. Literally, theos power, God power, to destroy strongholds. So Paul's not necessarily talking about what the weapons are. He's already said in 2 Corinthians 6 that he fights with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Have you read Ephesians chapter 6? One of the more explicit passages in the New Testament on spiritual warfare has to do with the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit. So Paul's not looking at the weapons per se. I'll tell you what the weapon is here in a minute. But what he's looking is at the power of the weapons. And that's pretty important to, to hear, isn't it? Isn't it good to know that Paul recognizes that he has God-sized weaponry for this warfare? In our terminology, he's got the biggest gun. It's got the biggest caliber. It's the most effective at completely destroying strongholds. So the question is, what is a stronghold? What is the fight about? Where does the fight happen in the life of the church, in the life of the individual? And he goes on to explain what a stronghold is. We destroy arguments. Well, that's an interesting thing to say, isn't it? Arguments are, it's basically a general word that refers to any reasonings or perceptives or, or perspectives, I'm sorry, or philosophies or psychologies or man-made religions or anything that has something to do with systems of thought. And Paul says this God-sized, powerful weapon that we have has the ability to take down a stronghold. You know when, uh, when David takes Jerusalem, Jerusalem in the Old Testament is described as a stronghold. And David is, is the one who brings down the stronghold. Even the image in your mind when you think about a stronghold is something that is high, something that is impenetrable, something that is lofty, something that is secure. And Paul says, we have just the right weapon to bring down this stronghold, to bring down these arguments. Now, as I said, I, I'm sorry if I've disappointed you and that up to this point, we're not talking about demonic possession and exorcism and rebuking demons and speaking a word over them. The reality of spiritual warfare is far more mundane and at the same time, far more subversive and deceptive than we even want to admit. In fact, even bringing up spiritual warfare makes you go a little bit like, really, Steve? Is that what we're talking about? 
What's interesting is when you move into the pastoral epistles, uh, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, he says, the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, when he talks about the, uh, the uh, culture in which the Corinthian church lives, he says, don't go to these feasts where they eat meat sacrificed to idols because what they're sacrificing to are demons. So Paul has a way of letting us know that the spiritual battle that is happening, he says this in Ephesians 2, he says it in Ephesians chapter 6, the spiritual battle that we are in is at the level of the spiritual and it is at the level of the demonic. And how those express themselves are explicitly in arguments, perspectives, reasonings, philosophies. Look at the next thing he says. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion, literally everything that is high. If you're looking at the stronghold, the stronghold in my mind goes from here to here. So now we're at the bottom of the hill and we're looking up at the stronghold and the steeples are high and the battle is raging and the enemy is entrenched. And Paul says we have a divine weapon that is able to destroy these strongholds, to demolish these arguments and these lofty opinions. Literally these high thoughts. What's interesting in the context of 2 Corinthians is that these false teachers come in and what they're asking is not to be on the same level as Paul. They aren't fighting for the heart of the church to say, yeah, Paul and us. What they're doing in the context of the church is saying, no longer Paul, me. No longer Paul, this teaching. No longer the gospel, but the gospel and, the gospel plus. And it's a replacement theology that is happening in the life of this church. So here's Paul writing this letter and he says, this is the lofty opinion that is being preached in your church. Here is the arrogant teacher and preacher who's taking the gospel message and moving it to the side and replacing it with a pseudo or false gospel. So, you remember uh, when we were in Revelation? At the end of the book of Revelation, the Antichrist will for a season of time allow everybody to have a coexist sticker on their bumper. For a long time. But there comes a point at the end of the book of Revelation where he sets himself up in the temple, proclaims that he is God, and demands that everybody worship him. And don't miss the fact that what is happening in the life of this church, what is happening in the life of every single church, what is happening in the life of even our church, is that there is a war for the purity of the gospel living in the center of who you are. And the arrows are aimed. And the goal is to get you even more entrenched in what you think sounds good to you. And to replace on the throne of your heart, God with yourself. God with a false gospel. And Paul says we destroy arguments. We destroy every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Number three, we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 
which tells us this battle that is waging war in the Corinthian church is happening at the level of our reasonings. It's happening at the level of our beliefs. It's happening at the level of the things that we think. And these lofty opinions come up and they make us, they attack us, they assault us at the level of what you and I believe about who God is. So why does Paul think they're at war? Why does Paul appeal to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that they might be reconciled to God? You know the same words that he uses for entreat and for beg are the same ones he uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I appeal to you, be reconciled to God. What is at stake in this church? They would lose the gospel. What is the weapon that preserves and deepens and strengthens the church? It's the gospel. So every single time in the book of 2 Corinthians when it's mentioned that we are taking thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, what does that tell you about the thoughts? Are they antagonistic or submissive to the gospel of Christ? What do you think? Here's how the word is used throughout 2 Corinthians. It's used specifically and refer to Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul says that we would not be outwitted by Satan for not, we're not ignorant of his designs or thoughts. We're not ignorant of the fact that Satan opposes the true preaching of the gospel of God. It's used in 2 Corinthians 4 where it says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. We are assaulted daily with attempts to get us to believe things that are anti-gospel. And at that very point is where the battle is raging in your life right now. Do you know that? Do you feel that? Do you feel the sanctification struggle that's happening in your life right now at these, in your relationships, in your work, in your parenting, in your marriage, in all of these places? Do you know that there is a spiritual war happening in the ways that you think and that patterns of thinkings and reasonings and arguments and human philosophies are trying to worm their way into your theological grid and they're aimed at what you believe about God. So how do we win? So we understand where the war is, right? We understand the tools that we've been gifted. Let's find out how to win, amen? Look at verse six. Paul says, we're being ready to punish. Now, I want you to see Paul's patience. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. What does Paul want for the church? What's the goal of what we're doing when we gather here? What's the outcome of a victorious spiritual battle? You know, when we talk to you about taking your next step with Jesus Christ, it's just, it's just another way of saying we're, we're here to help you in your sanctification journey. We're here to help you become the man or the woman that God wants you to be. We're here to help you submit every area of your life in growing, loving, submissive obedience to Jesus and his word. We're here to make disciples fully formed, fully mature, proclaiming Christ, saying that Jesus matters at the level of your spiritual warfare right now, that Jesus has something to say about the spiritual battle that you are in. 
And Paul says the whole goal of the preaching of the gospel is to aim at the complete obedience of God's people. But second, the whole goal of preaching the purity of the gospel, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If that's Paul's doctrinal center, then if that message is preached correctly, what you will find in the church is that that message divides. That message will cause people to say, I want none of who this Jesus is. And here's Paul writing this letter with his heart invested, knowing that he's in a war for the hearts and minds of his church. And he says, I'm ready for there to be consequences for disobedience. But not until your obedience is complete. Not until I have all of your heart. You know, um, when you think about spiritual warfare in the Bible, you know the first instance of spiritual warfare is in the Bible? It's in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan comes to Eve. Let me tell you, so spiritual warfare, let's, let's understand it. Let me give you an example just because of Genesis chapter 3 that I think plays out when Jesus faces Satan in the wilderness during his temptations. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan comes to Eve and Satan makes several remarks that are aimed at several major ideas that I think are helpful for us to understand where spiritual warfare is happening in our own lives. So we know there's a spiritual battle going on at the level of our arguments and thoughts and desires and feelings and perspectives. We have the gospel of God. The goal is that the gospel of God, to win that spiritual battle, is for us to ultimately be obedient, not just to think good things about Jesus, but to actually obey the things we know to be true about him. Right? That's what it looks like to win, to be growing in our loving obedience and submission to Jesus Christ. That's what it looks like to win the spiritual battle in your life. So when Satan comes to Eve, he starts and he aims at what, they, what she believes about God. Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree of the garden? And he aims at Eve herself. Who are you? Are you made in the image of God? Let's talk about God. Is God withholding? Is God stingy? What do you think? Is God just? You will not surely die. So the temptation in Genesis chapter 3 aims at what you believe about God. Number two, it aims at what you believe about who you are. Number three, it aims at what you want. You ever want some things that you know are against what Jesus wants for you? No, just me. That's good to know. I feel that. You feel that tension in your heart this week, this, this month, where you've wanted things, you've desired things that you know are contrary to what God's word says? That's where spiritual warfare lives. And ultimately, what does Satan get Eve to do? She saw the fruit tree. She saw the fruit, that it was good, desirous to make one wise. She reached out her hand and she took it and she gave some to her husband who were there. That ultimately the goal of spiritual warfare is to result in disobedience. Is to get everything framed up in your mind so that disobedience makes sense. And the scary thing about spiritual warfare in Genesis chapter 3, the scary thing about Jesus and his own temptation 
at the beginning of his ministry is that spiritual warfare isn't fought at the level of swords or wands or fireballs or exorcisms. It's very simply fought at the level of conversation. How many conversations do you have with yourself on a week-to-week basis that are not informed by the gospel of God? How many conversations do you have with yourself or with others that are essentially, I want this, help me figure out how to get what I want? How many conversations do you have in friends who are walking next to you and asking you hard questions about whether or not you are living in accordance with the gospel that you say you believe? How many times are the decisions you are made informed by the clarity of your theology and who God is and the clarity of who you are and the deceitfulness of your own heart? You are fighting a spiritual battle. And for us to be honest about the spiritual battle requires, watch this, that Paul cares about what is happening in the church. The people that you are sitting next to right now are in a spiritual battle for their life. And we come, we're all dressed up, we talk about spiritual warfare, and those are good things, and I'm interested about what's happening in this passage, but you will get up and you will fight a spiritual battle for your soul this week. You may fight a spiritual battle for your soul in the next hour. And Paul says, I want to do all I can to preach in such a way that the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ and him crucified for sinners would be the central decision-making factor in your life because we are at war. So this is where Paul is headed. This is why Paul's tone is so serious. Because we need to reckon with the fact that we are at war. That there is a war for your heart right now in the things that you read. There is a war for your heart when you read Facebook. There is a war for your heart when you watch the news. There is a war for your heart when you get on social media. There is a war for your heart in the unspoken false gospel that is preached in your vocation. There is a war for your heart when you seek to find your justification outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ who loved you, died for you, was raised for you, and will come back and get you to one day. There is a war for your heart in the way that you parent. There is a war for your heart in the way that you live with your spouse. There's a war for your heart in the way that you submit to your boss at work. And all along the way, Satan is alive and active and preaching a false gospel. And our only hope is what we're about to celebrate here in communion. This is what Paul says in writing Galatians 2 verse 20. That I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but is he who lives in me. And this life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how you win the war. Father, as we prepare our hearts to partake of communion, would we be sobered by a text like this? And Father, we pause and I pray for every single person in this room who because of what we see in this text, we know they are in a spiritual battle for their heart. And Father, would we be a church that fights and tears down strongholds, that tears down and destroys lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God, that we would be a church that take thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, and that we would be a church that because of the gospel, because of your sacrifice for us, that we would grow in obedience. Father, give us courage to take a stand in our families, in our workplaces, in our marriages, in our relationships with friends and family, 
knowing that our justification doesn't come from our own or some false system out there, but we rest alone and are justified because you love us, you died for us, you rose from the dead, and one day you will bring us to be with yourself. So Father, bless us in our ambition to present to you hearts that are wholly yours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.